Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Mari Serla, an autistic board certified behavior analyst who consults with teachers in schools to provide professional development training on various neurodiversity affirming topics. She is also completing her doctoral program at Texas Tech University. As a Latina mestiza, Mari is passionate about supporting displaced migrant families and their children with disabilities who enter the school system. She is also the co-founder of the LEAP Institute, a nonprofit whose mission is to increase equitable access for marginalized groups entering into the field of applied behavior analysis, or ABA. Through her Instagram account, The Bilingual Behaviorist, Mari hopes to educate and mediate between the worlds of autism and ABA. In this conversation, we discuss Mari's process of discovering and accepting her late diagnosis, how autism is understood in Native and Latinx cultures, the intersectionality of neurodiversity and race, her collectivist approach to providing services, and ideas to bridge the divide between the autistic community and ABA. Before we get into the interview, I'd like to clarify a couple of terms that came up in case you're not familiar with them. The first one is ableism, which is discrimination or social prejudice against people with disabilities based on the belief that typical abilities are superior. Ableism can manifest as an attitude, stereotype, or offensive comment or behavior. The second term is extinction-based, which refers to an ABA strategy used to reduce unwanted behaviors. For example, imagine a child is screaming because they want a piece of chocolate. We could give the child some chocolate so they would stop screaming, but that could actually have the opposite effect, leading the child to scream every time they want chocolate. In contrast, an extinction-based procedure would entail not giving the child any chocolate when they are screaming in order to reduce that behavior. Extinction-based procedures are controversial because they can be traumatic for learners. Side effects may include anger, frustration, and in some cases, even depression. In this episode, discover what's possible when values inform the method. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you, Mari Serda. Hi, Mari. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thank you for being here today. Hi, thanks so much for inviting me. Could you please briefly introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Mari Serda. I am a human. I am a, an autist. I'm a behavior analyst. I am a wife with three children, and I'm just really excited to be here to get to chat with you today. All right. So let's start with your autism. And you found out about your diagnosis as an adult, right? 
Yes, it was right after college, not too long ago. So yeah, that's definitely been something that's really impacted a lot of areas of my life. Definitely some positives, but just some things too that have made me really need to to pause and self-reflect. But yes, mm-hmm. I, I received a, a late diagnosis. So what was that like for you to receive it at that point in your life? Was it a surprise or how did that whole process come about? Oh gosh, it was a multitude of feelings. I know the initial, just kind of hearing it and reading it, I almost didn't believe it. And I didn't even tell my husband first. He was not the first person that I told, because I think what what really scared me was my response to this diagnosis and this idea of this being part of my identity. And so I, I think I, I was recognizing some ableism in my own self in, in that response. And so, you know, working in a field, you know, in public education as a behavior analyst, but also primarily as a special education teacher for so long, it, it really made me concerned that if I was having these feelings towards myself, how was I, you know, potentially having these types of biases and ableism towards the individuals that I was working with, the the children that I was advocating for. So it took me a little bit of time to really process and even, you know, give myself grace to be in that those space of feelings. I reached out to a dear friend who's also a behavior analyst. And and I said, I've got to tell you something pretty interesting. And, you know, it, it started with telling her, it started with telling someone else that was close to me and getting this almost like affirmation, you know, with like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. You know, and I think that maybe for some of my, my closest friends and colleagues, Maybe there was like a sneaking suspicion that, that you know, Maddie's a little quirky. You know, she 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 says things that you know are a just a different view and different perspective, and and also very blunt and direct, especially when it comes to speaking for those who can't speak for themselves and having a very strong sense of social justice. And so I, you know, I think that it, it was encouraging for me to have those people closest to me to kind of affirm that this diagnosis wasn't something bad, but that it did answer a lot of questions because it did answer many for, for myself, you know, and reflecting back on my childhood, reflecting back on just things that I would do in my life to help me navigate, you know, and I just for the longest time assumed this is what everybody does. Hmm. People will pick up a broom and sweep a room from a certain direction, you know, clockwise. And, and by doing this, I'm also practicing social interactions that are going to be happening at a future time and making sure that I follow all of these communication conversation rules and, and, look at the person when I can and make sure I'm still hearing what they're saying and make sure I wait my turn. You know, all of these things that I just thought, well, doesn't everybody do that? Don't you practice? (laughs) (laughs) And just other things that maybe were more on the deficit side of, of autism, like meltdown type behaviors and 
just things that, you know, made me really feel like there's something wrong with me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm too passionate. According to some people, I'm, I'm way too intense. I always have such a serious face that, you know, people can't tell if I'm happy or sad. So it was late coming, but it was, it was needed for me, you know, at a point in my life, you know, I'm going to be 40 at the end of this month. And it just really helped to solidify that there is nothing wrong with me. There is a difference. My brain is just different. And it's definitely influenced how I approach my work. You know, I felt like I was always about what's best for the individual based on what they think is best for them, not what I think. So all of my work has always been different. And I I now attribute it to the fact that I'm different. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So what led to you seeking out the diagnosis? Did something happen? in your life that made you think, okay, this is different. Like this is something that I need to seek out help for. Yeah. I think it was a couple of things, you know, having really close colleagues that are in the general field, you know, whether they were psychologists or professors, just some that would kind of made some indirect remarks of like, you know, you, you might consider getting some evaluations done. I'm curious to see but they didn't say necessarily that I, you know, I think you're autistic or, but I would also share some struggles that I was going through some very specific things that seemed to be increasing or increasingly happening that were really, I guess, scary for me. And I, I now realize that after 40 years of developing masking skills and developing coping mechanisms to navigate a world that's really not ready for me or really not designed for me, you just get to this point where you're exhausted. But I guess the closest I can attribute it to is, you know, my husband and I used to run marathons and ultra marathons. And you, you just get to this point where your brain will just not obey you. It will just not do what you're telling it that it needs to do. And, and that's kind of how I felt was you know, my brain and my body were betraying me in certain situations that I could normally navigate. And I, I kind of go back to, there was this one kind of major aha where my, my daughter, she was a little younger and she w- wanted to be really helpful and write out this grocery list for me to go shopping. And my family knows I have a very particular way that I like to do my grocery shopping. And again, didn't think anything of it. And so she wrote this list for me. I didn't even look at it until I got to the store. And then when I looked at it, it was in paragraph form and the order of the items were not in the order that I put them in. And I tried, I was like, okay, it'll be fine. I'll just like read it like words and, and go, you know, all different ways through the store and not my usual route. And I... I think I made it to like the first couple of items and then my brain just began to betray me. Like I was feeling completely now what I understand to be like a meltdown. You know, my eyes couldn't focus on the words. I I couldn't read what was on the paper. I felt disoriented and just this panic. And then, you know, I, I just managed to make it to, I think it was like the bread aisle where it's like, you know, the peanut butter and the the strawberries and I'm not the strawberry, the strawberry preserves. Mm. That's what we get. I just remember being in that aisle and just kind of looking at the stuff, just like 
that's bread, that's peanut butter, that's, you know, just reading the the things just to try to re-regulate myself. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is, this is not okay. I, I just, I don't understand what's happening. And so it was situations like that, that were increasingly occurring when my routine and my way of doing things were suddenly disrupted. And I thought, okay, something's going on. You know, I've had people say, hey, maybe just, you know, go talk to somebody about it or maybe look at some evaluations. So when I went in for this initial evaluation, it wasn't even really to look for a specific diagnosis. I'm sitting here thinking like, maybe I have severe anxiety or OCD. Maybe I have depression, like something's going on that now I can't control it anymore. And so went through a battery of assessments and conversations. You know, it's interesting because for adults, there's not really a good measure. Mm-hmm. And we, we sometimes mask for so long that it's hard to remove the mask because I know how I'm supposed to respond. It almost becomes like habit. So it was a really interesting journey for me. And one I think that I'm still going on, discovering things about myself, now having a connection to where that stems from and why that manifests the way it does. And I definitely see, you know, neurodiversity in my own children now, which is funny because you would think being in the field, you know, working with individuals, being a behavior analyst, that I would be like, oh, I see it in everything. But I just think there's so much missing in the whole spectrum of recognizing neurodiversity that many individuals just end up trying to cope their whole lives and really don't know where all of it originates from. Mm. Are you receiving any support right now? (laughs) Um, Sorry, I, I don't mean to laugh in like a negative way. I actually had a conversation with the neuropsych not too long ago, because I was wanting to look at getting supports, some reasonable accommodations for my my work environment. And, you know, this, this also helps me to recognize that we still have such a ways to go when it comes to supporting individuals with disabilities, because the neuropsych posed a really interesting question. And he said, do you feel at this point that your autism is no longer pathological? Because look at what you've been able to do. You're, you're going for a dissertation. You've made it through college. You've been successful getting an education and you've even been able to get married. And that just stunned me. The only thing I could think to respond was with the question of, so are you saying that people with disabilities are incapable of those types of successes? And if so, does that nullify the fact that they have a disability? So, you know, as far as getting supports, nothing like official. I do receive supports from colleagues that know. I still haven't disclosed to everyone that I work with because I feel like I have to be really cautious about that because I have experienced changes in expectation when I've self-disclosed and unfortunately not changes for the better. So, you know, supports are such a tricky thing. Like people are expecting less from you, you mean? 
no more like people are now really honing in that I do struggle with communication Mm. and kind of spotlighting that and looking at my performance based on that now as a deficit. And that's, I, I just think that's so interesting that we always go to like, the pathological side, like what you can't do, what you're not good at, Mm -hmm. instead of really trying to focus on the things that I am good at. I'm not a social butterfly. I don't do what they call water cooler talk or, you know, just in team meetings, I, I try my best when people are having those like really light conversations, talking about the things that they enjoy and the things that, you know, is happening for them but I'm more like, okay, we're here to work. Tell me what you need me to do so I can get back to my office and get it done. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that I struggle with like the relational piece of teamwork, I was hoping that accommodations might include not having that pressure to have to engage in that. You know, the colleagues that I do work really closely with and, and team up to do projects with they are also very close friends of mine and they they understand the way that I work and they are very supportive of that and they don't really push me to stretch beyond that for their comfort level. And I don't want to say that as though I'm like difficult to work with, but I'm very hyper-focused. Mm-hmm. If we have a job to do, we're going to do it. I don't want to chit-chat. <laughs> I don't want a small talk. And, you know, at, at almost 40 years, I'm like, I don't know that I'm ever going to get to that, you know, right. goal or that skill. So, yeah, I mean, finding supports is is tricky when you have been able to cope for so long and people don't understand that you're tired. You know, there's this sheer exhaustion. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that that's definitely an area I'm still working on. I'm glad you brought that up about the neuropsych because I was actually going to ask you about it. I saw your post on Instagram a couple of weeks ago when you were talking about that. And so that really caught my attention. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think that there's still much work to be done in multiple fields, you know, related to individuals with disability, not just with autism, but I think in that last kind of story that I shared, the question that I left with was, if you ever find yourself surprised that someone with a disability is able to do something, I I think that that's a little bit of a red flag, Mm. you know, that you've got to step back and say, why, why am I surprised? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And really dig and see, is there any deeply buried ableism somewhere in there? And I've had to do that for myself. Being uncomfortable is where growth happens. And so that's that's just something I think is important for everyone. Yeah, definitely to catch those moments and really question what biases we're bringing to the table. So, Mari, I, I want to talk about your ethnic background as a Mexican-American, and you also have indigenous roots, right? Yes, I do. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, this is a global podcast, the Global Autism Project, and we love to talk about cultural differences and the intersectionality with autism. So how is autism viewed in both of those cultures? What is the current understanding and level of awareness? 
So, you know, I think it's interesting because even within the culture of, you know, Mexican-American, Latino, Latinx, there is a variety of subtle differences in how autism is, is seen and how it's addressed. And especially in indigenous cultures as well, like the native cultures, here where I'm at, there is a high high number of of immigrants, you know, whether it's migrant workers, migrant farmers. And what I have found in the many years that I've been working with them is that there is a very deep sense of protectiveness of these individuals, especially the boys that receive this diagnosis. And there's a lot of lack of trust in the public education system, rightfully so, in the private professional practice system, you know, whether it's mental health, whether it's ABA, whether it's any other majority dominated practice, what I've seen much of the time is that it's about caring for the individual. There is no longer this concern of, well, let's push for academics or let's push for independence. And I don't want to confuse independence with autonomy because in that family, there is still autonomy, but there is this level of collectivist and communal care that the society expects. And so what I've really had to work on is with some of these moms, when the schools come in and say, hey, we want to evaluate your child, we think that there's an autism diagnosis or some other disability, to really work on getting the trust of the caregivers to not pull their child from the school setting or from the medical or clinical setting, because what ends up happening is they absorb the child into the family, into that community, and we don't ever see them again. Mm-hmm. So there's a very deep sense of protectiveness. And, and again, I can't speak for every, I guess, vein of the Latinx, Latino, Latinx culture, but just in this area where I am at in Texas, that is what I've seen a majority of the time. And it deals with the fact that many of these families are not here legally. Many of them are here, you know, as migrant workers are really trying to make ends meet for their families. And there's this fear and mistrust and distrust of a primarily white system that is now telling them, that there is something wrong with their child and they need to be brought to the school for speech or for OT or for any other services. And there is a fear that they'll be separated or the parents will be sent back or they will all be sent back or the child will be kept and the parents will never see them again. So there's a lot of just delicate balance of how I, as a Latina mestiza, indigenous individual, can work to gain the trust, all the while knowing that I can't fully trust who I'm working with, Yeah, you know, and, and, and having that fear. Are those legitimate concerns? Like, would that really happen where they would maybe deport the parents or take the kids away? We have unfortunately had instances where teachers or staff, some staff are not receptive to educating these individuals simply based on the status of their legality here. And so, you know, we don't have a very welcoming culture in some areas that I am working and it's frightening. It's frightening. Mm. 
a little bit of a tangent, you know, even if you're not disabled, if you have a certain last name or you even have a certain first name and you're looking for jobs, it's based on that, not on skill set. So, you know, there's there's so much work to be done, even in just race and intersectionality apart from disability. And disability just magnifies the issues that are already there. Mm-hmm. So from your personal experience, how did your family respond to your diagnosis? <laughs> it's funny. Um, so I have family that does have diagnoses as well. On my mom's side, I have older family, you know, like uncles, second uncle type family that are on one end of the spectrum, brilliant in their own right, as far as neurotypical standards, you know, engineer level, but very much on the spectrum. And then we have other family members that are in the high support, high level needs realm of the spectrum where they will always need support. They will always need to have someone to provide them with some sort of care. I mean, that's in my immediate family. And it's interesting because it's several males in the family. And so when I, when I told my mom about the diagnosis, she was like, do you think I might have it? And I kind of told her about the assessments and and the things that were asked. And, you know, she shared some things that, that she has done her whole life. And it was like, I don't know, mom, you would have to go and get an evaluation. But she was very receptive to it. It was just like, oh, yeah, okay. There wasn't a lot of, are you sure? Like, do you think they got that wrong? Which was the thoughts that I had had with myself when I initially found out. And that's why I didn't tell my husband because, you know, I was afraid he was going to say the things I was thinking. Like, do you think that's right? Like, mm-hmm. maybe they got that wrong. And then it would be like, okay, well, then I don't have an answer now. I still don't have an answer for why these things are happening to me and why I experience life the way I experience it. But from, you know, my husband, he's probably like the most pragmatic, objective, just even keeled individual I've ever come across. And that's probably why we are such a good team because he was just very much like, okay. And with time, it's been more about, him recognizing certain things that I say and do and recognizing that the reason I do them is very different from maybe what some people would think. Like, for example, he's kind of my social compass. Mm -hmm. When we would interact with family and people that we both knew, I would ask him repeatedly about past situations. And I think in the beginning, he was kind of like, like, are you gossiping? Like, do you just want to keep talking? I'm like, no, I'm trying to understand like what happened in that social situation. Like, what do you think so-and-so was thinking? And, and why do you think they said what they said? And what, you know, why do they, why are they doing these things or saying these things? And I think with this diagnosis now, and, and it's, it's like, a, oh, okay you're actually seeking to understand because there would be situations that would happen that I'm like, did I respond the right way? You know, and, and did, did I overshare? Did, did I answer the question? And so he has just been incredible at helping me to navigate. Even when I'm 
now having tough conversations with with neurotypical individuals I'm like okay what's the point of this conversation what do you think their agenda is and what do you think I should say in return because this is what I'm thinking and he's so good at helping to guide me in making sure that I speak I mean for lack of a better term neurotypically when I need to with people and making sure that I'm not being misunderstood And there's a great article called The Double Empathy Problem or The Double Empathy Dilemma. And it does a wonderful job of explaining that we can communicate. We just don't necessarily communicate according to neurotypical standards. And we we are emotional and we do have feelings, but not according to neurotypical standards. And so, you know, reading that and, and again, just continuing to learn about all of these things that now it's like, oh my gosh, it makes sense. Mm. It's relieving. But then I feel a very heavy sense of responsibility in making sure that the people that I work with, the people that are in the same field as myself, recognize that sometimes you're targeting something that's not even a deficit. You just don't understand it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you actually have a really unique position as an autistic BCBA because you can personally relate to the clients that you serve. Did your approach change after you discovered your own diagnosis? I don't think my approach changed. I think I became braver in speaking out about my approach because for a while, and I've I've told a few friends about this, people would see my work and they would say things like, wow, that's like dirty ABA. Like you're not withdrawing reinforcement. You're not ignoring, you're not doing all of these things. And I'm like, I wouldn't want it done to me. Hmm. So my practice, I think, from the beginning was was seen by some as very atypical. And again, I'm pulling my own cultural background of being deeply rooted in collectivism and communal support and recognizing that when we talk about manipulating environments, I'm not touching the client. I'm not touching the child. I am manipulating the environment they live in and making sure that the environment supports them, understands them, and finds ways to effectively communicate so that they can have their needs met. And for me, that was just, that was how I learned the science and how I learned to apply it. Yes, it's a westernized model. Yes, it was made by white men intended for white male children, but Everything that I learned was immediately absorbed and infused by a neurodiverse, autistic, indigenous mind. Mm -hmm. And so there were things that I immediately recognized, like, that's not going to work for my people. But I see the principle of it. And I see where in that in my community and my people, how it should look and how it should manifest. Could you give an example of how you might run a program? from this collectivist mindset and how that would be different from an individualist mindset? Oh gosh, it involves bringing the community in. So if a child were to have a typical, let's say social play goal where we want them to be able to appropriately request um, a toy from a neurotypical peer, I'm going to switch that to also include teaching the neurotypical peer to recognize that that individual is asking for something. 
to recognize that that child has the right to see what it is that you're doing just as much as you do and addressing it from a, this child may be different to you, but they have every single right that you have being in this space on the playground, being able to play on the swings, being able to, you know, use the shovel to play with the sand and really bringing in the peers or the individuals that this person is going to be living with in a community type setting and existing with and not putting all the pressure on the client or the child that that is receiving the supports. Because I think sometimes our therapy, I don't even like to call it therapy, our supports and coaching is so focused on the client has to fix everything. They have to fix everything about themselves and get this right so that they can make the lives of the people around them easier. And that's not what it's about. I need the people around them to put in just as much work as what I'm expecting this child or this client to put in. And then a lot of my goals are also related to what the child values. It's not my job to determine what they value. It's my job to help them to learn to recognize that you can do and say things that get you closer to what you value, or you can do and say things that take you away from it. But when everything is related to what an individual values, it helps cut the fine line between coaching someone to tolerate difficult things and difficult tasks because it's related to what they value versus almost forcing a traumatic experience to learn a skill that's not valuable to them and never will be. For example, I will never probably value conversations that are small talk, you know, that don't have a point. I probably won't ever value that. But if someone were to sit there and try to force me, I would be miserable. It would be traumatic for me because it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. It takes many spoons. It takes a lot of energy to have to do that. And it's funny because I value teaching. That is something I'm so passionate about. And so my job requires me to speak in front of 50, 70, 100 people, which is a lot of energy for me. And and it takes me time to decompress from that and to re-regulate. And, you know, I will self-seclude in order to, to kind of get my bearings back. But I love to do that. That's what I value. And so the stress of that is worth being able to teach someone and for to see that light bulb and for it to change their trajectory and the way that they treat people like me. Mm -hmm. So that's how I approach probably a majority of the work that I do. And then there is a different set of practices for individuals that have much higher support needs. There are some things that are a little more targeted. You know, if you have a child that is demonstrating fecal smearing, there's a sensory need. Much like autism is a spectrum, our field should be a spectrum in the approaches that are taken. But at all levels, autonomy within a collectivist mindset, if you know if that can make any kind of sense, and student, client, child, whoever assent and consent and values-driven practices should be the foundation for all of ABA, regardless of whatever vein or approach we go down, depending on the needs of the person. 
there should never be a time when I'm providing a service that the individual does not want. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk later about how we can improve the field, but we have a few listener questions that I want to get to before we move on. So these are contributed by Priscilla Haros. Oh, yes. Do you know her? I kind of do. Yes, on Instagram. (laughs) Nice, nice. It's funny how it just, you know, brings everyone together now. And it's a really great way to connect. And especially for people that are autistic. Yes, Mm -hmm. I have probably found some of my closest friends on that platform Mm -hmm. because it's so much easier for me. Yeah. So she wants to know, how do your clients react when they learn you're autistic? So I guess first, do you disclose? And maybe this can also extend to parents if you tell them. So I haven't got to that point. Okay. And I think there's various reasons for it. Many of the parents that I work with are still in the grieving process, you know, and I see so many people really being harsh on parents and not recognizing that you can grieve something and still love something at the same time, you know, and, and many of these parents are grieving a future for their child that they expected and anticipated. And there's the fear of the unknown of what, so then what is their future? Um, And I think being a parent, there's times when we kind of all grieve what maybe we thought our children would be, but they're their own unique individual. And so I feel like most times parents aren't ready to hear that I am autistic because my life trajectory is not the only measure that they should use for expectation of their child, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I worry that they'll think, okay, you're autistic and you've done all these things. So, you know, that my child's going to be the exact same way and they'll, they'll be able to do these things. And it's like, well, no, not necessarily. I can't predict the future. And so I am just now kind of coming into my own in self-disclosing to colleagues and to the field. And thankfully, there are a few others in the field that are both autistic and behavior analysts. And, you know, I think we are walking precariously down a middle road of speaking truth and recognizing that by doing that, we're not going to be embraced by either side most of the time. And so I'm navigating just, you know, disclosing that in the professional realm. Mm And I feel like sometimes with the older children, you know, it's funny, you recognize other neurodiverse people. It's like a radar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I think sometimes, you know, when, when I'm hanging out, we're playing and we're talking and we're, you know, working on some skills, like I'll kind of see that like, huh, you're thinking a little bit like me, you know, and I don't know if they maybe like really consciously register that. And some children don't even know that they are autistic. I don't know that parents have had that conversation with them. And so I I have to navigate that carefully. I'm I'm not there yet. It would be wonderful if one day we could be, Mm -hmm. right? Where children openly know, I'm autistic, I'm neurodiverse. And this person coming to visit me is like a coach. They talk to me about the stuff that I'm dealing with. They give me ideas of what I can do. And they help me to recognize that some things I don't have to worry about because it's not what I value anyways. And that's kind of the beautiful world that I hope we get to one day. 
Yeah, me too. And I understand your apprehension about not wanting to give false hope or false expectations for families. But I do also see such a tremendous value in building a stronger rapport. You know, like Mm -hmm. families thinking, wow, okay, this person gets it. Like I can trust them to make good decisions because they know what my child is going through. Yeah, no, and I can definitely see that. There's just so many layers to that onion. Even walking into some of the homes and being minority, being indigenous and Latina and having darker skin and darker hair, there's already apprehension. And so, again, that's kind of that tightrope that I'm walking is there's so many layers of who I am. And when I see that the outer layers that you can see that are visible are already met with hesitation, I'm very careful about whatever else I present, whatever other layer that I choose to reveal. So again, you know, in a perfect world, we could be open books. Right. So maybe one day. Yeah. So Priscilla's next question, you've kind of talked about your approach. She wants to know what your favorite ABA strategies and goals are. Oh, gosh. (sighs) Favorite ABA strategy, functional communication. To me, that's the only real strategy that's worth (laughs) addressing is making sure that the client has a voice, whatever that voice looks like. Because once they have a voice, then they can tell me what they need, what they want, and they can tell me when to back the heck away. And so really just, you know, if there's like a, I don't know that there's like a specific structured protocol, I always tell my supervisees, like the only thing that should be rigid and structured is really your data collection. Everything else should be fluid. Everything else should be so organic and natural. And as a matter of fact, I was messaging some colleagues that were asking, like, what would you tell your RBTs to stop doing and and to do? And I would tell them that everything should be play. Everything should be natural interactions with you just offering opportunities to embed a skill to practice and honoring when the client's like, "Mm, not feeling it don't want to practice it right now. You know, again, that's my dirty ABA is it's very much about helping this individual learn to communicate and me learning to understand how they're already communicating. You know, in the indigenous culture and some indigenous people's, I guess, way of thinking, there are people that speak to other people. And then there are people that speak to the plants. There are people that speak to the animals. There are people that speak to the sky. You know, again, that's just really tapping into the way the indigenous culture views the way people communicate. And so for me, that's just such a natural part of seeing an individual in the way they communicate and not being so rigid in the, if you don't say please and thank you, and you don't speak in these recognized formats, then you're not communicating. And so I think that's where a lot of the pieces of who I am culturally and who I am just from my own, you know, ancestors is is that communication is everything. And if we focus on that, then everything else is easy. Mm -hmm. And tying back to what you were saying earlier about including the community in that, I really love that example that you gave about teaching the other kids in the sandbox that your client deserves to be heard also, Mm -hmm. like has a voice. And how can we teach the people around 
to look out for those things. It's just pushing for more acceptance in the world and more inclusion, teaching these younger kids like, hey, this person is trying to communicate with you. And that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, because we're such a society, at least, at least what I'm seeing that's so self-absorbed, like it's all about me. It's all about me. And we never stop and look in, at this person that's maybe giving us cues and going, oh, wait a second. Let me, let me try to understand what you're saying. Let me try to see, you know, and, and just as this is, that's the individualist that I see, like it's, it's me, me, me. And even just in raising my own children, it was always when we went to the playground, I would pull them in, aside and say, do you see that little friend right there? Tell me what you see them doing. And they would say something to me. They would respond. Oh, I see them doing this, this, and this. What do you think they're trying to say? What do you think that they need? And so from the very beginning, my children have been taught that you are very aware of how other people are trying to navigate the world around them and around you. And you need to be able to say, you know what? Let me learn how you're trying to speak to me. Let me step into your world for a moment. Instead of this, you know, really harsh, come on, we're going to pull them out. We're going to pull them out of the, you know, out of this autistic inner world that they're living in and make them participate going to the restaurant and make them do these things because it makes me as a parent feel better because it makes me as a society member feel better and more comfortable. And so it's more work, but it needs to happen. Yeah. And then to teach the child with the disability or with the autism, Hey, they're listening. They're listening. So now let's start the conversation. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you to Priscilla for sending those excellent questions. And if anyone else would like to contribute to our episodes, you can follow our Instagram at autism podcast to stay up to date on upcoming guests. So Mari, I want to go back to what you were talking about earlier with regards to trauma that people have received. You know, on this podcast, we've talked previously about the division actually between some autistic adults and the field of applied behavior analysis. And, you know, as a behavior analyst myself and on behalf of the Global Autism Project, you know, I can say that we definitely acknowledge that harm has been and can be caused by ABA. So I just want to give our audience a little bit of background because you know, we have a very wide range of listeners. We have parents and service providers, also self-advocates, and some people may not really be familiar with what we're talking about here. So could you give just a few examples of what specific practices are known to have caused harm? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Anything that's extinction-based where you are you know, in some way, ignoring the individual and, and ignoring their humanity in moments where they probably need support the most. I think we have also made a grave mistake, even though the grandfathers of our science, Bear, Torino, Skinner, all said private events are equally important in addressing emotions or private events, thoughts or private events. The problem is they're more tricky. It's a lot higher response effort on our part to address those as part of an individual's behavior. But someone is much more than the external behaviors that we see them exhibiting. And I, you know, I've shared this before that 
some of the most significant and dangerous self-injurious behaviors are someone's private events, the thoughts that they have about themselves, the emotions that they have, the self-esteem issues that, that arise from not being understood, not being accepted as is. And so I think that as a field, we have neglected one of the most critical environments of the people we serve, and that is the internal environment, private events and thoughts. And by doing that, by recognizing that we have neglected that, we also need to recognize that there are other disciplines that we must collaborate with in order to address that area. We are not the end-all be-all. I am not a fan of the phrase that ABA will save the world because it won't. And we need to recognize that we are one tool in a toolbox and that parents, caregivers, therapists, Everyone needs to recognize that we are just one spoke in a massive wheel of supports that an individual should be receiving. There has been incredible damage done at the hands of individuals who have not stopped and recognized that the practices may work, but at what cost, you know, to what detriment to the individual's internal environment, to their thoughts, to their emotions. And, you know, there is some on on the side of anti-ABA that want to get rid of all of it, that want to say that we, we cannot do this anymore. And, you know, my concern with that is anything that is is developed, any science, any practice, any any medical model can be used for nefarious purposes in the hands of the wrong people. It's not necessarily the science, it's the people using it, you know, and many in the community go back and talk about Lovos and much of that was related to the work that Lovos did because prior to that, it was more about learning how humans learned and how humans behaved. It was more about being an observer in this and, and learning how all of this worked. And then it was kind of like, oh, well, we have the key to changing behavior, let's now apply it. And there was no pause for, we can, but should we? And so it just jumped on this trajectory and just sped up to where we're at now, you know, at this point in time. And we are now, I think, getting to a pivotal moment where many in the field are saying, we've got to change course immediately. And As an autist, one of the things that I I hope that comes from my community is a recognition that change requires compromise on both sides. And we may not be able to fully either change the name or get rid of the science, but we sure can hold people accountable. You know, we sure can look at our ethical codes and recognize that just because it says the client consents, that doesn't necessarily mean the individual. It can mean the parent. It can mean the corporation. We have to recognize that the words that we use in our ethical codes, the words that we use in our assessments, those are all performative. They're going to drive the way that we perceive the people we're serving. And so I think that again, and I talk to my husband about this all the time, I'm walking a very narrow middle road. And I, I just want to speak truth. And unfortunately, when you speak truth, many times 
the truth was going to upset one side or the other because ABA has done damage, but ABA has also done good. And there has to be space for both of those sides to have the conversation. What are some of your ideas to bridge that gap? We need autistic researchers. We need coursework to be neurodiversity affirming. We need to have a history of ABA. In fact, that's actually something that I'm getting ready to have a work group on is the history of applied behavior analysis. Like, you know, the dark side, mm-hmm. the good side, everything. Many people aren't even aware of, you know, going as far back as Watson in the 1913, you know, Cantor in the 1917 and 1918 era. It goes back so much further. And I think people really need to know where we've come from, the good and the bad. It's kind of like I tell my children with Texas history, like you're only getting one side of the story. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Let's dig a little deeper into the history of, you know, the U.S., Texas. And it's the same thing. You know, we've got to have a much better understanding of the history of our field, both the good and the bad. If we're going to make change, we need to have a, a way to reference where it went wrong, even more deeply than just saying it's low boss, you know, we're low boss ABA, you know, or low boss trained. We've got to go a little deeper than that and see where, where the breakdown happened. And then we need to be hiring autistic consultants. We need to have community consultants who are neurodiverse that can go into a clinic and say, these practices are not neurodiversity affirming. This is where you need to work on. We need to be able to now move from the platform of speaking and shouting to the work. Mm -hmm. What are we going to do that's productive? And I have shared before in the past that we need to disrupt a system as gently as possible because I want the system to come tumbling down, but I don't want people hurt. I don't want the individuals within the system to be harmed because then I'm no better than the system that I'm trying to disrupt, if that makes sense. Yeah. I also kind of get the sense that there needs to be some kind of acknowledgement for the harm that has been caused. Like, should this maybe fall on the BACB to make an announcement and say, yes, there has been harm and let's do better? Like, would that make the autistic community feel better, do you think? No, because I think it would be a performative move. And I think perhaps the reason why many of these larger organizations haven't spoken out, because when you make a statement like that, then action has to follow. And if they're not prepared for the action piece, then all they are doing is giving a lip service. If they're truly about the work, then what we will start to see is boards bringing in autistic voices, boards having autistic individuals be a part of writing the ethical code. Universities bringing in autistic voices to actually write some of the coursework and curriculum. We have to make sure that what we are doing is not bringing in a face for token performative measures or for lip service. And that's something that I shared with uh, Dr. Megan Miller in in an Uncomfortable Conversations episode was like, if if you're really not ready to hear what we have to say, don't bring us on board. But then I want to kind of further say to my autistic community, if you are not prepared to speak and offer productive resolution that is able to think logically through this reform, even though we do have an impassioned desire for this to change, we have to go about it logically. And I'm impatient. I want it to change immediately. 
but we have to recognize where we have to take the small steps to build that momentum, to get the snowball rolling. And if we refuse to do that, if we refuse to sit in those uncomfortable spaces, knowing that that's the direction we're going, we're just going to stay right where we're at. We're going to become stagnant. And my husband said, it's like autophagy, you know, where you just consume yourself because all we're doing is just, is just continuing to yell into the void that, that this is, that this is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, what you've done is wrong to my people. Okay, great. We're bringing you in. Help us make the change. Help us. And, and it's going to be difficult because what that means is to collaborate. And when you collaborate, what you're ultimately recognizing and acknowledging is we don't always agree or see eye to eye, but what we value is a better system. Mm -hmm. Have you met autistic people who were against ABA and then changed their mind? You know, being autistic, one of the characteristics is is being very set on something and having strong opinions. Like, is there reasonable room to actually have someone go from one extreme and move towards the middle? So let me let me dive a little bit into that. What I am finding is this movement is built upon the focus and the values of removing and fighting something that someone hates. That in, in and of itself is problematic because of the direction it takes the movement and the people within the movement. What I am finding is that individuals who are autistic will reach out privately and say, this is my community. I've never been accepted anywhere else but here. And I find myself being swept up in this movement, even though I don't agree with it 100%. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid to say that I don't agree 100% because the movement is rooted in almost this ostracizing of anyone that disagrees. And if you are not fully aligned with every single part of it, there's no room for those tough conversations. There's no room for diversity of thought within this movement. And what's going to have to happen is that some of these major influencers in this movement, if it's truly about improving services for this community, if that's truly what the value is, we're going to have to have the difficult coming to terms of that may mean working with the people that are part of the system that we're so much against. And it's, it's, and Joy Johnson does an amazing job. If anyone ever can listen to her speak about it, there is also a part of this movement that is concerning for us autistic individuals where it's it's becoming about more of a platform for something completely different and we see a lot of similarities in some of these like tiktok videos and some of these things that are being said and my concern is that it's taking away from the work that really needs to happen it's like there's this attempt to just keep us in this space of calling out and canceling with no real desire 
to sit at the table together and hash it out. Basically, like this is where we need to work. These are the steps we need to take. This is how we as autists need to be involved in this process. This is where you as behavior analysts and professionals need to step back, you know, and having that uncomfortable conversation. And it's going to take some of these larger influencers kind of driving this movement to, to really stop and ask like, what we can't just wave the wand and this all disappears. There are other logistics like billions of dollars in funding. There are other things that need to happen strategically to disrupt this system. And we need help doing it. We need to be able to shift from coming together to fight against what we hate to shift to we all have the common value of we want to build something that we for the people we love. Those are two different value systems. You can't do both. So where is your energy going to go? I don't want to fight against something I hate. That's draining to me. I want to teach. I want to teach that there's a better way to do this. Does it have to change names? I don't really care. (laughs) You know, and this is from a person that everything that I benefit from right now has had origins or roots in trauma towards my people, the medical field, you know, they were still doing hysterectomies on the illegal immigrants down in South Texas, you know, without their consent. Those things are still happening. Does that mean that I'm not going to benefit from that same system and field? We have to be able to be in the space to have these uncomfortable conversations and fight the temptation to get up from the table and leave when it gets really hard. Yeah. Well, I'd like to close with one last question. What advice would you give to BCBAs who want to ensure that they're not unintentionally doing harm with the services they're providing? Build in qualitative measures. If you're not already, if you have past clients, clients that have left, clients that have graduated, reach out to them, get testimonials. Also learn what ableist language looks like and sounds like, and really begin to dissect everything that you use, your initial intake forms, the assessments that you choose to use, the way that you, you know, look at, at behaviors, you know, target behaviors, looking at the language that we use to identify. I was looking at the FAST and it talks about, does a child exhibit these annoying behaviors on purpose? I'm like, that's, that's terrible. Mm -hmm. Like we're already making things so pathological in just the language that we use every single day. So of course that's going to influence how you perceive the person. Build in person-centered planning. That should be everything cultural, you know, competency practices. If you're a supervisor, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm like thinking all in all areas. If you're supervising people, are you aware, you know, it's, it's Ramadan that I have supervisees that are observing Ramadan. Do you have that written in your supervision contract? The acknowledgement, awareness, and acceptance of religious and holy days. Like we, we have to change every single thing that we maybe just didn't even think needed to be addressed because it didn't impact us. 
And I know that's a big kind of broad statement, but you have to start really looking at things from a critical lens and saying, would I want this done to me? Would I want someone talking about my child this way? If I went in for an interview, would I be okay with the, the interviewer knowing every single thing, every single deficit that I had? So, you know, really start to look at how you set up your, your clinics, how you set up your practices. What are the values of your team, your clinic? And start from there. All right, Mari, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your perspective. I think it's so important to, you know, really put our clients' dignity and well-being at the forefront. So we have a lot of work to do as a field, and you are so valuable to it. So thank you. Well, thank you. And, and I'm excited about the work. It's a lot, but we're starting. And that's, that's a beautiful thing to see. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. I truly believe that when implemented with a compassionate, client-centered approach, the science of ABA can help individuals reach goals that will enable them to live fulfilling lives. We have a lot of unlearning to do as a field, and we need guidance from autistic voices to ensure that our services are in line with neurodivergent values. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your experiences and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. We already have a growing number of members with different roles related to autism, getting to know each other and engaging in these important conversations. You can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.